Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20 Minute Books, we delve into Orientalism, a groundbreaking work by the esteemed Palestinian American scholar and literary critic Edward Said. First published in 1978, this book is a vital exploration of the deep seated biases and stereotypes that have shaped Western attitudes and policies towards the East for centuries. Said's meticulous critique unravels the web of cultural misrepresentation and hegemonic ideology that is Orientalism, illuminating how these views have historically justified empire and continue to affect contemporary geopolitics. As the pioneer who helped establish the field of post-colonial studies, Said's expertise brings authoritative insight into the complex interplay between culture, power, and imperialism. Orientalism is a critical read for those fascinated with non-Western civilizations, scholars and students of international politics, and anyone interested in understanding the enduring legacies of colonialism in today's world. Join us as we summarize and reflect upon the profound arguments presented in Orientalism and consider the implications of Edward Said's thesis on our perception and engagement with diverse cultures across the globe. Whether you are a seasoned academic or a curious mind seeking to unpack the intricacies of cultural dynamics, this episode promises to offer a concise yet comprehensive understanding of one of the most influential scholarly works of the 20th century. Orientalism, Western Conceptions of the Orient. Introduction. Exploring the Eastern Enigma Through Western Eyes. In today's world, the East often takes on an allure of the mysterious, a land of ancient wisdom, intoxicating spices, and timeless traditions. But have you stopped to ponder how this image came to be and who is behind its perpetuation? This journey into the heart of Orientalism might just reshape your understanding of East and West relations. At first glance, one might dismiss the exotic portrayals of Asian and Middle Eastern countries as innocuous fascination. Yet, there is more to these stereotypes than meets the eye. Orientalism is not merely a fascinated study or simplistic portrayal. It is a calculated Western creation, a framework that defines and often diminishes the Orient. Edward Said's groundbreaking exploration reveals the complex tapestry of Orientalism, from its role in justifying colonial expansion to the modern political landscapes it continues to influence. But more interestingly, Said reflects on philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's suggestion that many truths we hold are, in reality, fictions we've simply forgotten to question. Let's delve deeper and discover the connection between Orientalism and the birth of imperialism, how the birth of nation-states fueled both oppression and the struggle for liberation, and the powerful image of the Arab sheikh and its implications for modern-day geopolitics. Part 1. Unveiling the Curtain of Orientalism, the West's Invention of the East. Picture. This. A veil of mystery shrouds the eastern landscapes in a globetrotter's advertisement. You're invited to a world where the exotic thrives, a realm infused with an ancient charm that whispers tales of a distant past. It's captivating, but this romanticized version of the Orient is not simply a quirk of advertising, 
It's a fragment of a much larger picture known as Orientalism, a concept born from the West's imagination. If we trace the lineage of this perception, we encounter a significant milestone, Napoleon's Egyptian campaign in 1798. But it wasn't merely a military conquest. Napoleon's entourage included intellectuals and scholars who compiled the extensive Description of Egypt. This publication would become a cornerstone of Orientalism, introducing a band of experts to the world stage, the Orientalists. The British Empire, during its zenith in the 19th century, further molded Orientalism to serve its colonial narrative. To them, the East was an array of nations bound together under the moniker the Orient, encompassing regions as vast and varied as the Middle East, Asia, and the Far East. Slowly, a collective portrait of Eastern lands emerged, an intoxicating, sensual, and illogical territory painted in broad, homogenizing strokes. Orientalism began dotting its eyes with tales of exotic intrigue and unfettered passions. Harems became symbolic of Eastern eroticism, emblems of a landscape supposedly teeming with primal desires. In juxtaposition, Eastern people were depicted as woven from a fabric devoid of reason, allegedly lacking the logical prowess attributed to the Western mind. This harsh binary suggested that all things rational and reasonable were inherently Western, perpetuating a divide that, over time, seeped deep into the cultural consciousness of both worlds. Part 2. Behind the Veil of Knowledge, the Undercurrents of Orientalism Imagine delving into a field of study only to find that your efforts are entwined with greater ambitions than pure understanding. This is the web in which Orientalism finds itself entangled, not just a scholarly pursuit, but a mechanism for control, laden with economic motivations and political agendas. At the heart of this paradox was Napoleon's notable foray into Egypt. Accompanying his military might was a legion of intellectuals whose research not only illuminated unknown facets of the East, but also inadvertently supported the colonialist mission. They became the advisors and informants to those who sought to extend their dominance over foreign lands, weaving education with imperialism. These Orientalists navigated a delicate interplay of trade and power. For instance, to secure economic leverage in Egypt and garner the locals' support, Napoleon and his academic troupe would reinterpret religious texts. By framing themselves as allies of Islam, the French aimed to paint their occupation in a favorable light and influence local sentiments to favor French trade interests. In this strange paternalistic theater, the Orientalists claimed to wield a deeper knowledge of the East than the Easterners themselves, unlocking secrets of ancient civilizations, decoding hieroglyphs, and unearthing forgotten cities. Armed with this exclusive insight, they fashioned a cloak of authority that draped over the local populace allowing them to assert a subtle form of supremacy. This claim to knowledge, far surpassing what was known or could be known by those native to the Orient, revealed a glaring irony. The West's so-called understanding of the Orient wasn't enlightenment. It was a strategy, a means to validate the West's cultural and political imposition over Eastern societies. Part 3. When East Meets West the evolving face of Orientalism. Consider the moment when a traveler's fantasies about an exotic land clash with reality, 
this very collision forced a historic recalibration in the field of Orientalism. The Orient, once meticulously painted by the West, began to reveal its true colors, and the academic realm of Orientalism had to adapt or risk irrelevance. The Orient, that had been fervidly imagined by writers like French poet Gérard Nerval, was nothing more than a romantic vision, a captivating illusion crafted by centuries of Orientalist literature. However, upon his actual arrival in the East, Nerval's dreams were interrupted by the truth. The living, breathing Orient defied the static image locked within the pages of his book, Voyage on Orient. This sharp contrast between perception and reality was further heightened by the winds of change sweeping across eastern lands, anti-colonial revolts and cries for independence, such as Egypt's 1919 uprising against British control, beckoned a newfound assertiveness from the Orient. It was no longer a silent muse for Western imaginaries, but a voice demanding recognition and respect. Confronted with an awakening, East, Orientalists found themselves at a crossroads. Some clung to their historical narratives, attempting to freeze the Orient in time as a specimen for study. Others, like Hargib, started reconsidering previous stances. Gibbs' shift in perspective, from entrenched narratives to the dynamic discourse of his 1945 and 1963 lectures, exhibited a growing awareness that the field had to evolve. Yet there were a few who entertained the most radical response to relinquish the pursuit of Orientalism as a distinct study, to forego the entire concept of viewing the East through the prism of an Orient. This notion, revolutionary in its simplicity, proposed dismantling the barriers that had for so long defined one part of the world through the lens of another. These thinkers, though scarce, pioneered the thought that the study of the East must transform from within, recognizing the sovereignty and the inherent diversity of its many cultures and realities. Part 4. Charting New Frontiers in Orientalism, Adaptation and Expansion The ebb and flow of resistance movements within the East posed a challenge to Orientalism's authority and reach, a challenge that would spur the discipline into uncharted territories, both geographically and methodologically. One strategy embraced by Orientalists was that of expansion. As the classical heartlands of Egypt and the broader Middle East became less of a foreign enigma, scholars stretched their canvas to include the vibrant mosaic of India, China, and even the distant vistas of South America. This enlargement wasn't haphazard. It supported the empire's thirst for knowledge that could further facilitate control and trade with these new regions. Through the colorful lens of exoticized utopias, travelogues, and scientific endeavors, Orientalism's domain grew vast, and with this growth, so too did its methods evolve. Scholars reached for a dialogue with the East, not solely as a detached observer, but as a partner in conversation. George Sale's translation of the Quran in the 18th century marked a departure from the entrenched monologues of the past. His attempt to interact with Arabic scholars signaled an era of increased, albeit still fraught, communication between West and East. But let's not mistake interaction for equity. This dialogue, while more inclusive, 
retained a clear objective to further the West's colonial and economic ambitions. Even as European scholars began to incorporate Eastern perspectives, these insights were co-opted, serving as a conduit for spreading Western ideologies. Consider Napoleon's strategy involving Egyptian religious leaders. By aligning the interpretation of the Quran with French colonial interests, he set a precedent for how dialogue could be manipulated to validate European dominion. Thus, even with its new willingness to engage, Orientalism molded its findings to reinforce the existing power dynamics, ensuring that Eastern voices served the Western narrative rather than challenging it. Part 5. Deciphering the East. Linguistics and Taxonomy in Orientalism. The task of discerning the intricate tapestry of the Orient soul was an ambition that drove many an Orientalist, and two figures in particular sought to penetrate its depths through the methodical study of language. If one could categorize the vast swath of cultures by their tongues, surely the essence of Eastern thought could be unlocked. First to mold the tools of taxonomy was Silvestre de Sassi, a pioneer in the field of linguistics and a founding figure of the Asiatic society. He heralded a bold venture to ascertain the mentality of Eastern peoples by immersing himself in their languages. De Sassi's intuition, that language held the key to culture's heart was innovative, yet his execution bore the hallmark of Eurocentric bias. For de Sassi, French represented clarity and coherence, the gold standard of logical expression. But when scrutinizing the languages of the Orient, he saw only irrationality and emotion. Rather than embracing the rich variety of dialects, de Sassi used his French lens to pigeonhole the Orient into categories that matched his own expectations, disregarding the diversities that did not fit his mold. Ernest Renan took up de Sassi's mantle but wove in the thread of racial theory. He recognized the historical complexity of linguistic evolution, yet he employed this understanding not to bridge gaps but to rank human groups. Renan sketched an image of racial hierarchy, underlining so-called European superiority, while casting the Semitic Oriental as an emblem of stagnation. These categorizations, while intended to simplify the East, ultimately painted a portrait that intertwined language, race, and, most consequentially, the perceived potential for progress. The methodology backed the narrative that the East, through its very nature encapsulated in language and implied racial traits, was predestined to trail behind the West's triumphal march. Part 6. Lost in Translation, The Irony of Orientalist Observation There is irony in the methods employed by the Orientalists. In seeking to unfold the unsung stories of the Orient, their very approach often brushed over the subtleties that granted the East its true essence. Take, for instance, the curious case of Edward William Lane, an observer so devoted to his work that he assimilated entirely into the local environment, donning the attire of the people, adopting their customs, and fervently documenting the intricacies of Egyptian society in his seminal work, The Manners and Customs of Modern Egyptians, Lane's commitment to scrutinizing Eastern lifestyles extended to sending his own sister on investigative forays into feminine spheres like harems and bathhouses. His two-pronged method required deep immersion, followed by deliberate detachment in order to distill his observations for the Western reader. 
Yet despite these earnest efforts to capture the heart of Eastern life, Lane, like many of his counterparts, succumbed to the constraints of categorization. The Orientalist's toolkit, filled with labels such as Oriental, Semitic, and other classifications of race and religion, served more to homogenize than to illuminate the myriad individual experiences. Complex cultural variations were neatly packaged into a set of standardized profiles, with the nuance and individuality of people's lives swept under a carpet of generalization. And when an Eastern individual exhibited characteristics contradicting the imposed stereotypes, perhaps a streak of methodical reason amidst a supposed sea of Oriental passion, they were dismissed as mere outliers. Thus, in their zeal to define and describe, the Orientalists erected invisible walls that separated them from the full human richness of the societies they studied. By viewing the Orient through the limiting prism of their own constructed categories, they inadvertently turned blind to the colorful mosaic of life that defied simple description, the very life they sought to understand. Part 7. Changing Tides. How Global Upheavals Reshaped Orientalism. The dawning of the 20th century heralded a wave of monumental shifts that would ripple through the very fabric of Orientalism. As the world contracted in a web of burgeoning connections, the specter of European domination faced a resolute challenger, the emergent voice of the East. The seeds of dissent, planted by the resolute hands of anti-colonial movements, began to sprout across the once subdued landscapes. The Indian Mutiny of 1857, the Egyptian revolutions of the early and mid-20th century, and numerous uprisings in African territories exemplified the East's burgeoning defiance. These movements did more than unsettle the colonial status quo. They invited a profound re-evaluation of the West's grip over Eastern domains. A distinctive irony arose during this era of tumult. The tools once wielded by the West to subjugate were now repurposed as instruments of liberation. The concept of the nation-state, together with the luminous ideals of liberty, equality and fraternity, was turned against the colonial overlords. The Orient championed these principles, not as a mere reflection of a European mirror but as a clarion call for their sovereignty. Yet, it was the colossal impacts of the First and Second World Wars that forced an even starker reckoning. The once mighty European empires found themselves beleaguered, their vitality sapped by the cataclysms of global conflict. Their territorial ambitions were now expensive relics of a bygone era, left to crumble beneath the weight of reconstructions and dwindling resources at home. Such seismic shifts brought the colonial economics into acute question. The calculus had changed. Maintaining dominion over distant colonies morphed from lucrative enterprise to burdensome liability. The West's narrative of cultural and economic supremacy waned, birthing a new reality where the Orient ceased to be seen as a wellspring of wealth or a conquered trophy. A fresh dialogue was beginning, one that acknowledged the East's voice and its claim to be more than just an object of exotic fascination or geopolitical power play. Part 8 Orientalism. Reimagined. The American Epoch. Believing that the fading of colonial powers would usher in the quietus of Orientalism is tempting, but reality paints a different picture. Orientalism has not vanished. Instead, 
it has reinvented itself, donning American attire and wielding influence in ways both overt and subtle. Firstly, Orientalism has permeated the popular American consciousness. Recall the caricatures that emerged during the oil crisis of 1973. The heavily stereotyped Arab sheikh, often drawn with a predatory nose hovering over oil fields, a cartoonish continuation of the Semitic imagery recycled from anti-Semitic propaganda of the past centuries. These illustrations served not just as a product of imagination but as a political tool, crafting a narrative of the Eastern other as innately foreign, uncivilized, and adversarial. Such portrayals add a veneer of legitimacy to interventions abroad by tapping into the undercurrents of fear and division. In academia, the Orientalist legacy persists across disciplines and departments. No faculty may bear its name, but the approaches and attitudes that define traditional Oriental studies are alive in the curricula of political science, sociology, anthropology, history, and psychology. By clinging to tropes of the inscrutable East, with broad-brushed references to Muslims, Arabs, or monolithic Islamic cultures, intellectual inquiry, intentionally or not, reinforces the dichotomy between us and them, casting Eastern peoples as a perpetual ideological antithesis to Western values. Lastly, in the realm of U.S. public policy and government decision-making, Modern Orientalist thought has found robust advocates in think tanks and policy centers. Influential works like Samuel P. Huntington's Clash of Civilizations paint intercultural relations in stark, militant tones, framing difference as an inexorable source of conflict. This vocabulary and the research supporting it inform foreign policy strategies, gradually cementing themselves as the intellectual bedrock upon which policymakers enact and justify their global agendas. In essence, the Orientalism that launched a thousand ships from European shores casts a long shadow across the American landscape, reshaping and reflecting in the policies and perceptions that drive the nation's engagement with the world. Final Summary The captivating journey through Orientalism uncovers a stark revelation. The Orient, long scrutinized and romanticized, is a construct, a Western invention projected onto a diverse tapestry of cultures spanning from the Middle East to Asia. Rooted more in imagination than in reality, this concept emerged as a means for the West to conceptualize and, ultimately, to control the enigmatic lands to its east. Through academic study, artistic portrayal, and political maneuvering, the West established a narrative of the Orient steeped in exoticism irrationality, and backwardness. This narrative served to bolster the colonialist ethos, providing justification for economic exploitation and territorial expansion. Yet, as the East awakened, pushing back with anti-colonial movements and demanding autonomy, the image of the Orient was forced to adapt, albeit never entirely shedding the biases of its creators. Now residing at the heart of American culture, Orientalism persists in academia, popular media, and governmental policy, shaping perceptions and influencing international relations. Still, it remains a reflection, a lens crafted by Western hands, distorting the complexity of Eastern lives and histories 
through a veil of foreign definitions and desires. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then, happy reading and happy listening.